1: Yes, a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening to you, however you may be listening, and wherever you may be listening. This is the Man on the Post podcast coming to you on a Wednesday for some bizarre reason. There was obviously a lot of scheduling conflicts going on, so again, we were meant to be on the Sunday, things changed. It then got moved to the Monday, things changed again. Now we're recording on the Wednesday on what should be... Champions League final day because in the old days this would be because they were on a Wednesday night It never quite made sense to me, but that's just the way it is now But we will be getting into the European Cup slash Champions League final Depending on what you want to call it in a couple of seconds But before we do, I'll just introduce the panel and I'm only joined by the one man tonight And it's our lovely uh, Dutch football expert. It is James Rowe coming all the way from Holland. James, how are you? I'm very well, Matt. How are you? Good, good. Um, So yeah, unfortunately no Colin, no Ross, no Andy, and unfortunately no Marcus either. So it's just the two of us. So unlucky if you don't like us, but I can't see any reason why you wouldn't. And we'll just kick off straight into the first subject, as I uh, alluded to. This Saturday coming is the Champions League final. It's Real Madrid and it's Liverpool in what is one of just... When you at the start of the season, or sort of as the season went through, and you were looking at the teams in the Champions League, this would be one of, it would probably be the fixture that you wanted, apart from maybe Man City Barcelona because of the Pep connection. But Liverpool going for six, Real Madrid going for three in a row, the, the attacking lineups from both sides—it's just said to be an incredible, yeah, an incredible occasion. Thankfully, I've got to miss it because I'm off to the playoff final on Saturday. But other than that, James, I'll just sort of go straight to you. I can only go straight to you, but no matter. Um, how do you see this game going? You know, I mentioned the attacking lineups from both sides. You know, we've, uh, through that season, we've obviously heard and seen a lot of concerns about Liverpool's back line. They seem to have shored it up a little bit with Virgil van Dijk. But do you think there's enough there to hold back the likes of Bale, Benzema, Cristiano, the famous BBC, um, obviously a lot of other attacking talents? And then, reverse side, are Real Madrid going to be able to stop the the fearsome threesome of Mane, Saleh and Firmino?
0: Um, I think it will be quite a tense game. But I think uh, Real Madrid will win 2-1. Liverpool have done it exceptionally well to get to the final. Nobody expected them to. And they've uh, fully embraced it and knocked out some very, very good teams. So all credit to them. But I just think Real Madrid's experience of, um, of a final and the clock doesn't have the greatest record in finals. And I can understand people talking about the attacking temp, but I think goals are going to come from the most unlikely sources on uh, on Saturday. I wouldn't be surprised if, it, if they, Dejan Lovren, for example, scores a header from a corner. Or something a bit rogue like that in finals themselves. I mean, if you look at um, when Real Madrid played um, Atletico Madrid in 2014 and everyone was talking about the, about Ronaldo and about the attacking prowess they had and it was Ramos that actually, actually equalised for them in injury time. So, uh, I can see unlikely goal scorers uh, on the scoreboard on Saturday. My prediction is two one to Real Madrid.
1: I was going to say you mentioned unlikely goal scorers, and you know Dejan Lovren and other defenders would be an unlikely goal scorer. Sergio Ramos doesn't exactly come into that category of unlikely goal scorers because he's been fantastic for them in situ- You know, he doesn't score many, but over the years, particularly these past sort of five years, whenever Real Madrid have needed a goal, it, it's not Cristiano that provides it. It's always been Sergio Ramos.
0: Mm. No, I meant in terms of before the game, in the, in the final in Lisbon in 2014, it was all about Ronaldo, it was all about the uh, the, um, the threat the attacking threat of both sides and it was the central defender that scored the goal so that, that was my point in that respect
1: Yeah, and uh, you mentioned that Jurgen Klopp has done well to get Liverpool this far um, do you think he'd be seen as a, do you think it would be seen as a failure thus far, you know he's Uh, This, uh, well, two and a half seasons into his tenure at Liverpool, so we'll round it up and call it three. He's reached one final thus far. That's the uh, League Cup final, uh, do my maths, two years ago in his first season. He lost to Manchester City then, and now he's made the Champions League final today. Do you think he needs this in order to sort of, uh, to have a success, or to be deemed a success, or will he? St- or if he loses, say, is he still deemed a failure, even though he's made it to the final? Or does he have to win it? That's probably the best best way of wording it. Does he have to win this to keep the failure tag off him?
0: Um, I would say so, but I don't think Liverpool fans would agree. But you also um, you also have to remember that Liverpool also reached the final of the Europa League. Oh, of course, they, yeah, uh, that was well. They lost to the Sevilla. They lost to the Sevilla in 2016, but the uh, the um, they done well to reach that final. But I remember watching his press conference when he was unveiled, and uh, they were asking Klopp for his uh, predictions, and he uh, said uh, that he believes that by the time his contract is finished, he will ha- he will have secured at least one title whether that be a cup or a league title so if he doesn't win on saturday i don't think the fans will uh, will uh, be on his back straight away but i think it really sets him up for the next full season where if he doesn't win next season um i think that could well be the end
1: i was going to say has it you know has he built up enough because a lot of the talk about and i remember and i was frustrated by this a lot of talk saying now Liverpool are in the Champions League regardless of what happens against Real Madrid, as if they're you know taking the Arsene Wenger stance of getting into the Champions League is a trophy, and I think that's not really that's not the right way to look at it. The it should be they're in the Champions League now, see if they can go into it as winners. Yeah, it's is that really the right sort of mindset to? To have around this is the, you know, the Champions League. However, you get there, just just get to the Champions League.
0: Uh, well, I think it's the wrong mindset. I think any tournament you play and you want to win it. And um, I think what was telling for me was when Leicester knocked Liverpool out of the League Cup, because everyone seemed to think that the League Cup would uh, would provide uh, clock with respite. People thought exactly the same as regards to the FA Cup when West Brom knocked them out. And um, although they've done ever so well, the, the pressing game that Jürgen got plays with Liverpool, it takes an awful lot of energy out of his players. It takes an awful lot of energy out of his players that you can't necessarily sustain over a whole season. You can't necessarily win a, win a title playing like that week in, week out. And you saw towards the end of the season as well with Liverpool's uh, strange results uh, against West Brom and against Stoke. So um, I don't necessarily think... If they don't win on Saturday, um, I think the, the the British press might the knives might be out a bit, but I think the uh, Liverpool fans themselves, I think they would uh, they would go full throttle ahead to next season, and um, and they would hope to finally secure a trophy on the Jurgen club.
1: Yeah. Now you mentioned the uh, pressing game and the fact that it takes a lot out of the players. Do you reckon the fact that Liverpool have will have had an extra week off? Because uh the Premier League season finished on the thirteenth of May, the La Liga season finished on the twentieth of May. So that's an extra seven days worth of rest for the Liverpool players. Do you think that's gonna be will play a big part? And how big a part do you think that will play?
0: No, I don't think it'll play a big part. I don't I think if you look at the Real Madrid side that uh, that started against BLL, it uh, was a bit of a mix uh, a bit of a mix and match. Um I think their experience with the final uh, with the finals as well. I mean, I watched um, I watched Real Madrid win the Champions League live against Juventus last uh, last June in Cardiff. And when Juventus scored that equaliser, I thought they were going to go on a win it through the occasion and the players and Mancukic and. Uh, and uh Danny Alves and uh, the players they had at their disposal. But I was wrong, because Real Madrid, when the equaliser uh, came and they they galvanised themselves and went on to win the game 4-1, I just think the experience in finals, I think that's going to tell. I, one thing I do find a little a little bit strange in some quarters is, is that some people are advocating for teams to win the Champions League three, t- three times in a row is not healthy. I don't understand... The people saying that, I don't understand their point of view. You can only beat what's put in front of you. And Real Madrid, uh, when they started out on this uh, odyssey of, uh, of three specific Champions Leagues, Real uh, Rafa Benitez was, the, was their manager. And Sedan finished the job, went on to win it again, and now he's in the third final. And uh, I just think that their experience is going to win the day. I think they'll... Uh, I don't think they'll uh, steamroll over over Liverpool. I think Liverpool will give a very good account of themselves, but I just think experience will win the day, and two uh, one is my prediction.
1: Yeah, and I'll agree with you that you know the wrong. It, it's very much the wrong mindset. You know, Real Madrid uh, in this this period of dominance, if you want to call it, is it healthy? I'd say it is because it's it's because they're playing different teams as well in the final. If it was a uh, a sustained period of Real Madrid and Barcelona in the final every year, then yes, maybe it would be a bit boring. But the fact that for these three, these three finals in a row, um, it's been Atletico Madrid, Juventus, and Liverpool. You know, three completely different styles of play. It uh, provides, it still provide, it provides an entertaining match up. If it was Real Madrid and Barcelona, or Real Madrid and Man City every year, then yes, it, then yes, it would be a bit boring. But the fact that We've got got three different styles of play, three different you know, three different storylines, if you will. It it does add it does add to that um, it does add to the backdrop of the whole thing.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I think the the three uh, separate opponents have asked different questions of Real Madrid, and in the first two instances, they've uh, they've come through with flying colours. And yeah. um, you also think as well with uh, Griezmann missing that penalty in Milan in the. Um, in the final, you know, if that goes in, it's a it's a it's a different game, so to speak. And uh, situations like that, but it should be it should be a good game.
1: Absolutely. Now, enough about the game itself. You saw sort of, you rounded out them nicely. Um, enough about the game itself. More about the venue, and this is something we talked about before we before we came on the air. Even though this isn't the air, but you get the idea about the city that is going to be played in. Now, it's being played in Kiev, which isn't really uh, uh, without meaning to be disrespectful to the likes of Andrei Shevchenko, who's done a fantastic job as ambassador. Whenever the Champions League final draw comes out, it's not really a destination. It's whenever you want to go to European final, Kiev isn't really high on the list of destinations that you want to go to. I mean, you went for the Europa League final in Leon. I go, I'd be okay with a final in Leon. You know, uh, next year it's in Madrid. A European final in Madrid sounds right before that you know Turin uh, not Turin Milan before that Cardiff before that Lisbon all stadiums and cities that make sense for European finals and the fact that it's gone to Kiev now and there's been a lot of problems surrounding the price of it uh, the price of tickets the price of hotels travel the lot do you think Kiev is do you think this is really the last of the uh, what do I say uh uh, out outsider cities to host a European a European Cup final, or do you think this is going to be? We're going to see more of the same going forward.
0: I think we'll see more of the same going forward. I think it's surprising the way that the bidding for um, for 2020 is between uh, Istanbul and Lisbon. But Lisbon had the final in two uh, six years. Well, what would have been by the time that comes around six years before in 2014? Um, so I think they could look back into history, and um, I mean, if you look uh, many, many years ago, you had the, the final in Glasgow, you had the final in uh, in Munich one time, and in Rome, and all these different places. But I think it's a sign of the times that um, everybody wants to have an opportunity to uh, to host. And I think um, I think UEFA is trying to be fair in their selection process. I mean, if you look at the Europa League final next season, it's in Baku in Azerbaijan. And now I'm an Arsenal supporter and um, should my club reach the Europa League final next season, um, Azerbaijan Baku is seven hours from Amsterdam. I could fly to New York for the same, uh, for the same amount of hours. And it just goes to show, I, think, uh, I just think it's a sign of the times and uh, I just hope that UEFA would look back into history and look at the venues that, that went before and try to, uh, try to find a balance really.
1: Yeah. Now, do you think it's right that they've sort of opened it up to to bidding rather than because I believe that the way it was beforehand is more or less uh, UEFA picked a city and said we're going to give it to because I remember London had it two out of three years and say London, do you want to host it? Do you have the infrastructure? And they'll say yes or no. And then it was sort of it was a first refusal of, of said. Now they've opened up to bidding. Is that because there's obviously been a lot of criticism? In regards to how big corporations, I know it's this is UEFA, but I'm going to mention FIFA and the way they've gone about bidding in the in the past. Do you think it's right to open up to cities to bid for uh, Champions League and you and European yeah and Europa League finals, or should it be? Uh, I've seen one of the ideas is this having as a rotating a group of five. So in year A, it goes to London, then Paris, then Milan then Madrid, then Munich, and then just starts all over again?
0: Um, I think everybody's... I think with, with, with the world we live in and the globalisation of everything and how everyone can get to different places quite quickly and the means that people have to get to different places, I think it's important to to give... Um, different people for chance i mean uh, i'll elaborate on it shortly but the champions league final that i experienced in leon was absolutely lovely you wouldn't necessarily have thought many years ago that uh, leon would be a choice for a champions for a europa league final so it just goes to show that small can be beautiful um, but I, I just think uh, with the sign of the times, I think everybody wants to be uh, involved. But but they've just got to rein it in a little bit. I mean, uh, in the case of Azerbaijan next year, I have nothing against Azerbaijan whatsoever. I'm sure it's fully deserving of its um, 2019 Europa League final. But the fact remains that I could fly to New York uh, within seven hours from Amsterdam. And if I want to see my team play in a potential Europa League final next season, uh, it will take me just as long from Amsterdam to get
1: to um, Azerbaijan is what it would is if I was to fly to New York City. Yeah, uh, that... In fact, I'll, you know, I'll just carry on the link. You've done it in, incredibly well. You mentioned that you went to the Europa League... You went to the Europa League final in Lyon last week. I've been to a Europa League final uh, in Hamburg in 2010. How did you find the whole experience? You know, was it how well organised were, you know... It was it, or how organised was everything? How easy was it to get tickets? You no, know, was there good atmosphere on the day? Everything, you know, did you feel like yes, this is right about you know about uh, Leon hosting a, a major final?
0: Yes, I did. I did. I was pleasantly surprised. I had no reservations whatsoever. And um, the, uh, the infrastructure and the atmosphere and, um, and the main square being in such close proximity to one of the metro stations and being able to, um, to go around without any difficulty. Also, after the game... Uh, people getting uh, to different parts of the city, laying on special trams that went to certain destinations, and uh, I can't speak highly enough of how well it was. Uh, it w- all came together, and uh, it was an absolutely fantastic experience. And uh, well done uh, to UEFA, and well done, well done to the, the people of Lyon. I say,
1: wow! That's a completely different, different story to the one I had because the Germans did incredibly well organising everything until the uh, until we got to Hamburg Airport right at the end, when there was a complete mess up. They didn't have enough buses or something, because they did it in this, yeah you know, something I've only ever seen it done in Europe, where you get to the terminal, and then you get a bus about 100 yards to the plane, for whatever, and they didn't organise enough buses, so they had to get the Atletico Madrid fans out first, which meant we, the Fulham fans, didn't leave Hamburg until about 6.30 the next morning. So I'm glad that you had a better experience of it than I did.
0: No, well, I, it was wonderful, and the the stadium is beautiful of Lyon. The fans, are, both sets of fans, were fantastic. I'd like to also commend the Olympic Marseille fans because they were raucous in the in the most positive way. You know, this is the the biggest club in the whole of France. If you look at what they've won and the fanatical support they're receiving, it's a huge club, and they really, really did, did themselves. Um, proud with the constant singing and the flares and uh, just the general passion and uh, they're in the Europa League next season and should they come up against my club then I may well be swayed to go to the home leg or the away leg even. I think uh, with, the, with, having su- with having such uh, great memories of Marseille in the final in Lyon, uh, I think that just might sway my head to uh, experience that all over again.
1: Yeah, now it's only just occurred to me that we're linking and talking about the Europa League and Arsenal. And this does give me a great chance to, because this is the first time we've ever had a, we've had a chance to mention it on the podcast. Unai Emery, who won the champ, who won the Europa League, was it three times? With yes, Spear, that's correct. Is now going to be Arsenal manager? Does it? Yeah, and you mentioned how you look so looking forward to going to Baku for the Europa League final if Arsenal make it. I mean, a, what's your thought on the appointment? And b, does that mean given his success in the competition? that you might as well start saving your money for Azerbaijan now?
0: Uh, well, first and foremost, I'm delighted with the appointment. Uh, I'd like to commend the Arsenal board. They, uh, I watched the press conference this afternoon where Khazidis said that he, they spoke to eight managers in total and they were extremely thorough and that's all you can ask as a fan. Uh, delighted with Emery's experience especially at European level but also what he did at Valencia and Sevilla, I mean you have to remember at Valencia he was under a lot of financial constraints and he managed to get them right up to the top of the table uh, playing some fantastic football and obviously with Sevilla with uh, winning the Champions League three times and and winning uh, with Paddy Saint-Germain as well, he's got an awful lot of experience he can uh, tactically improve us and uh, looking forward to next season. The uh, fixes are released on, uh, on the 14th of June. And obviously having to book my flights every time I go to watch my team, I, I'll be booking them in earnest as soon as the fixture list is released. But um, yeah, absolutely delighted. And I just hope that all Arsenal fans, Matt, give him the time necessary. I don't want to hear after six months... Uh, Emery out rubbish. I don't want to hear after the end of a season, oh no, this and that, this and that. He must be given at least three seasons before Arsenal can make a full judgment as to what exactly is happening. I hope he's left to his own devices to get on with his job. And uh, I have full confidence in him and his backroom staff and uh, look forward to a new era at the Emirates.
1: Now, when the sort of when it was all mentioned, you know, all the names were sort of thrown up in the air about who could be the Arsenal manager.
0: Who did you remind me? Who you said you ideally wanted? Uh, my first choice was Ancelotti. Who's now gone
1: I'm, to Who's now gone to Napoli?
0: Yeah, that's a bit of a strange one. But, but my, I advocated a shortlist Matt, of Simeone, Jardim, Allegri, and Ancelotti. Not that I didn't rate Emery. But I didn't necessarily, it didn't pop into my head straight away. And one of the things that I will remember of, um, of the cha- of the Europa League final shortly, just going back to that, you had the images in the stadium of the team bus pulling up inside the stadium. And they did that for both sets of teams. And when you saw the Atletico bus come into the stadium, and you saw the players and Simeone get off. The fire in Simeone's eyes... Just in his general actions, I mean, okay, he's only just getting off a bus, it's nothing special. But if you was to look at the body language involved in that, as to what that was kind of uh, the vibes that was giving off, well, you'd you'd have thought that there was absolutely no way they were going to lose that game. And they went on to win it uh, 3-0, and Diego Jodin was once again absolutely Irresistible. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to see an awful lot of football and uh, see many good defenders, but uh, I must say, in the modern day, Matt, he is by far and away the best central defender I've ever seen play live. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been there's been certain aspects, Matt, where a ball was dropping down from a very very high height, and you've got three people anticipating what's going to happen, and he's already got his foot on the ball. There's a, a free kick uh, scenario where. He's not only organising the wall; he's turning to his goalkeeper and double-checking to his goalkeeper that he's aware of, of what might be coming and what they've studied. And after doing that, he's turning about; he's turned his body back ninety degrees, and he's gone after the defend. He's gone after the attacker that he's supposed to man-mark. It's just absolutely, absolutely phenomenal.
1: Yeah. Now you mentioned Diego's uh, Diego Simeone earlier. There's one sort of managerial space left to be fit if you believe if you believe the rumors and that's uh, one of the results of the weekend Chelsea win the FA Cup but there seems to be heavy rumors and a lot of ideas going around a lot of talk going around that Antonio Conte is likely to be out of a job do you think Roman Abramovich will make that big push for Diego Simeone in the summer or do you reckon he's going to stay at Atletico Madrid
0: um, I think he'll stay at Atletico Madrid. But one caveat I do find very interesting is uh, Simeone not so long ago advocated that this last season was going to be his last. And then he backtracked on his decision and, and decided to stay longer. Um, uh, he's advocated uh, wanting to manage in Serie A because of his time at Inter, because of his time at Lazio. Um, I can see him going to Serie A from Atletico but he's in a bit of a sticky wicket now where if he stays much longer at Atletico Madrid then you're going to find clubs maybe thinking can we see this guy anybody, anywhere else kind of thing and uh, I mean he's made tremendous progression I mean he was one he was uh, he managed in the out before with Catania and he's, um, he's, he's got fantastic qualities. And um, I just think um, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I know Inter Milan have done very well and Spalletti's done a a tremendous job in getting them into the Champions League. But um, Simeone has advocated Inter Milan before and I think if doors open up there, I think he may well go to uh, Inter from Atletico Madrid eventually.
1: Okay, and that more or less wraps up our, uh, I was going to say domestic, but that's not the the right word, our international domestic... uh, Talk for this episode and now we move on to international international news and that is that most of the world cup squads have more or less been confirmed i was looking on the always reliable wikipedia earlier so it must be true every single nation has named either a full squad in the likes of, uh, uh, england have named a full their full 23 even though they could have uh, done a preliminary squad but south Southgate's decided to go with 23 I think Iceland have done 23 as well. Everyone else has got either that or gone with a preliminary squad of about 29 to 35 players, and they'll be whittled down during the friendlies and the training camps and all that sort of stuff. Now, what have been the biggest either omissions for you? Because there's been a lot of talk about how uh, Alvaro Morata has been left out for Spain. Um, I don't know how to pronounce his first name, but Nangalang, the Belgian midfield, has been left out and now decided to retire. Um, there's been a few omissions from the squad. So what's been the biggest story for you? Has it been someone who's been left out or has it been someone who's sneaked in?
0: Um, Well, for me, if I can turn on its head, Matt, and give the listeners three examples. I mean, I know everybody's different and they take what they want from it. But um, if I can start with Morocco, I look at Morocco's squad and they have a real mix of players playing in Europe as well as players playing for clubs in their own countries, such as Ar- Araja, Casablanca and Etihad Tanger. And I look at the manager, Hefe Renard and I, he's won the African Cup of Nations before with Zambia and Ivory Coast. And he hasn't just picked players playing in Europe, he's picked the players playing in Morocco for a reason. And when I look at the Moroccan um, team, such as uh, Hakim Ziyech, who who, who plays for Ajax and is arguably the best player in the Netherlands. There's uh, Ashraf Hakimi, who uh, plays for Real Madrid, who who, who I first saw in the Real Madrid youth team a couple of years ago. And he was uh, tremendous. And also uh, an an experienced player in Unes Belhander as well. So he's got a really, really good mix, Morocco. And I think that we'll see them surprising, and I think we will see them uh, reaching the second round.
1: James, are there any countries or any leagues that you don't know anything about? Because you you blow me away every week with your fantastic knowledge of these minor minor leagues and minor nations. Please, is there are there any countries that you don't know? Gabon. Do you know who their best striker is? Please tell me.
0: Please <laughs> make Corona, me feel better about myself. Gabon would be Abou Ab- 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 <laughs> May- Ab- obviously.
1: Oh, of course, I've Oh, well, that's, no, but, uh, that's, I take on my face, but yeah, uh,
0: carry on. No, thank the, you, but fa- fantastic for knowledge. I, I can only bow to you. No, thank you very much for the lovely uh, comments and lovely words. It's, mm-hmm. it's lovely, but mm-hmm. it's um, it's also what I like to do. And uh, if I am watching a match live, or I'm watching a match on TV, if so, if a player catches my eye, I will try to follow his career. If a um, if I have a spare five minutes at home and I want to look up a team that I don't know much about, I will do it. And it's, um, yeah, so if I can g- give you the other two examples as well. I started, with, uh, I started with Morocco, and the second example I wanted to give was that of Argentina. Uh, people associate Argentina with Messi and that be that. They had a very tumultuous uh, qualifying campaign where they almost didn't qualify, and they've got uh, Jorge Sapaoli, who won the um, Copa America twice with uh, Chile. Or was it was a fantastic Chile, um, Chile um, set-up uh, set and uh, wonderful players. But I look at the uh, Argentina squad and I'm, pleasant, I'm pleasantly surprised. Um, I look at the mix they have. And they have, uh, obviously, the players from four years ago, uh, such as Messi and Aguero and Higuain and DiBala. But they also have a player called Christian Ansaldi, who plays for Torino, who's been playing uh, quite well in Italy, and also uh, Pavon from Boca Juniors. So I think um, I think although Argentina have been written off, uh, having studied their squad a bit more, I think uh, I don't wish to be in the um, in the bracket of of people that um, that are. Um, Writing them off, and the final example. Uh, hang on just
1: quickly a lot of the talk and the sort of reason why people have been writing off Argentina. Uh, reason is because of their their defend their def, their. Def, I was going to say defensive lineup, but that doesn't that doesn't quite fit right. But basically, their their defence, they uh, people have seen it as a little bit suspect, and it's a case of can the likes of Higuain, Aguero, Messi drag that defence through? M- much in the way you know Cristiano Ronaldo. Dragged Portugal to the euro to the euro two thousand and sixteen final, kicking and screaming through that through that tournament do you see that Argentinian defense holding back holding back the team or do you think that the uh, firepower up front will be enough to you know see them through into the latter stages
0: no i think I think if you look at who he selected and from Torino. Uh, Tagliafico, who also had a very good debut season here in Amsterdam with Ajax, and uh, Marco Salojo and Masjolano, I, th- I think they've got one more, uh, one more push in them for the, uh, for the team to reach the latter stages. And the final example I wanted to give was one of uh, Portugal. Portugal have only selected uh, nine players who won Euro 2016. And again, it's a very good mix. I think Fernando Santos is slightly underrated. I think he's really shown his hand. And um, I, think, um, I, I think with those three that I've given, having looked at their squads, I think um, I think a surprise is going to come from those three. But if I had to nail my colours to the mask and say which team is going to surprise above all, then I, I would go for Morocco.
1: Now, for Morocco to, to pull a surprise, they'd have to knock out either Portugal or Spain. Now, given that you've said you're pleasantly surprised and pleased with the, with the Portugal setup, does that mean that you think Spain are going to be knocked out to the first go? Possibly, possibly. It, ha- it happened four years ago in, in the group. It, it, it did, we, I gotta say, yeah, we did No one saw that coming. And, no one saw, yeah, and especially it, the, possi-
0: the manner. It's, it's possible, absolutely especially the manner upon which it happened. And also, as well, Morocco didn't concede a single goal in qualifying. OK, it wasn't the most rigorous qualifying cam- campaign of only six matches. But if you think of the heat involved in the energy involved and the uh, the um, characteristics in games and situations, it's very impressive. And I am not entirely convinced with the, the manager of Spain, Lope Degui. You know, he's... Uh, yeah, managed at youth level in Spain, but when it's really, when it really comes to the crunch, and considering Morocco play Iran in their first game, and if Morocco were to put um, Iran away, then they only need to get a point out of their last two remaining games to go through. So, uh, I think it will be a World Cup full of surprises. I think um, I think the ignorance in some media quarters, especially regarding countries outside of Europe. And the players involved, and the managers involved—I think it's uh, it's just unbelievable. And it would be nice to for um, for people to to, to uh, choke on their words a little bit and be surprised with uh, with what other countries and other managers have to offer.
1: Yeah. Now, have you already sort of drawn out your uh, your uh, I was going to say uh, your blueprints for the for the whole tournament? Because I usually wait until. The squads have been announced before I you know, sort of do my plotting of who's going to be who and who's going to get who's going to get what in the final. Have you already started your your plans for that, or are you going to wait a couple of weeks?
0: I think I'll just wait a couple of days before the tournament starts. I've been just been studying squads at the moment, but I do think it's important for people to know. I mean, everybody gets ex- gets excited at a World Cup, and it's a wonderful tournament. People also have to remember, Matt, that there's only been eight countries that have ever won a World Cup, and uh, to get to be to be new, to be new and to, to force your way into that bracket is a is a big ask, but. Um, I'm I'm confident that uh, Brazil will do very well. I'm confident that Uruguay will do very well. And for me, maybe I'm a bit old-fashioned, that but the, the the ingredients of a of a decent squad, a very good manager, a seasoned manager. I mean, I, shortly before we came on came on air on the pod, I was reading um, my new World Cup book, which I ordered uh, to accompany the tournament. And I was looking at the page of Tunisia and reading up on the Tunisian manager who's 55 years old and has a lot of experience. He's managed in Germany and uh, has been manager of Tunisia for, for quite a while. And uh, he, he's eight years older than Gareth Southgate. Now, those eight years in terms of game experience and knowing how to turn, a, turn around a, a losing position... Or to see out a game, I wonder if those eight years that he has more, in terms of his years and experience, is going to be what uh, what sees uh, Tunisia through to the to the last sixteen of the World Cup. Well,
1: interesting. Now, so but you you haven't planned out the whole thing, but do you have your the no who who have you got sort of leader in the clubhouse? Who do you have winning? Who do you have winning the World Cup sort of at this stage?
0: Uh, my number one candidate is brazil and uh, my second candidate is you is your wife
1: okay i first i personally i don't know why i part of me thinks it's the uh, you know the pain of two years ago will just spur them on a bit more i personally i can't see anyone stopping the french and i don't know why i, I think it's mainly that you know i talked about argentina that attacking prowess that they've got with the likes of griezmann Adam Bappe, who's going to have a stormer at this tournament. Paul Pogba, who seems to only perform when he plays for France. N'Golo Kante, who's you know, two years in a row uh, PFA Player of the Year. I just look at that squad and I think, match them up against anyone and you can make every single argument you want that the French that the French will beat them. So I'm, I've i personally gone for the French.
0: Very interesting prediction.
1: Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, is that enough about the World Cup? You know, we've still got 23 days, I think it is, to go. Do you want to have more say on the World Cup or do you want to keep some back?
0: Yeah, I'll keep some back as, in the run-up to the uh, tournament and try to find a few uh, interesting players and interesting uh facts about managers and things like that because I think that's very interesting for the listeners to know
1: good now that leaves us with uh, before we do our traditional Dutch roundup we've got one more topic to cover and it was something you something that you suggested so I'm going to let you take the
0: lead on this one and introduce it yeah okay no problem I was um, obviously being an Arsenal fan and being active on Twitter uh, there were some grumblings as to why a British manager was not selected to become uh, Arsenal manager and uh, there were people arguing that why aren't, why aren't British managers given a chance at, uh, at top British clubs and um, I wondered if it's something uh, we, we could discuss, do you think that British managers are overlooked? For the bigger jobs in Britain, do you think that clubs are too eager to select a European to select a foreign counterpart, or do you just think it's a matter of matter of opinion?
1: Well, I think that British coaches have sort of been um, tie, tie casted into a sort of role. Like most British managers that you want to sort of name off the top of your head, are either the young up and comers. Sort of like your Eddie Howe, Gary Rowett, who's now gone to Stoke, seems to be one of those, you know, young guys. You know, in ten years' time, he'll be a big manager. They're either that, so they're too young, they're too experienced, or they're so experienced that they can only really do the relegation battle jobs. Your Sam Allardyce, your to an extent David Moyes, your Pardew, your Um So they they've sort of been put, you know, by hook or by crook, just the way that things have uh, developed over time. They're, they're put into one of the two roles. So no one thinks of, you know, when, no, now, now, no one's thinking of putting a British manager in charge of Arsenal or Chelsea or Liverpool or Manchester United. No one's thinking about, now, in five years' time, when the up and comers have come up, then maybe, but at this moment in time, that, they British managers seem to be put into two groups. Now there's one exception to that, and that's for some reason Brendan Rodgers, who is the Irish... He's British, isn't he? He's Northern Irish, am I right? Yeah, he's yes. Northern. Yeah, he's Northern Irish, so he's so he's British. I don't, want, I don't want to get into political stuff there. So for some reason Brendan Rodgers is just the lone guy that has escaped one of the two one of the two stereotypes of British managers, and I personally don't think he's I. I don't think he fall, I personally think he falls into the up and comer. I don't buy into what he did at Liverpool. I personally think it was all Luis Suarez and Daniel Sturridge. It was it was all that. It you no, know, it showed when he lost Luis Suarez that following summer. No, what he's done, what he's done in Scotland, I really don't find impressive. It because I know this is going to be snobbery. But it's Celtic, and when you don't have a feasible competition from any any source, I know you can only be what's being in front of you. But I'm just not impressed by what Brendan Rodgers has done. So therefore, I wouldn't trust him. At a big club, would I trust him at a mid-table club? Uh, who's mid-table? At the like a Newcastle, like an Everton. He won't go there because of Liverpool connections. But you know, if Claude Puel goes at Leicester, I wouldn't mind him going and taking the Leicester job somewhere mid-table. But I just don't think he's until he proves something. Until he takes Leicester or a mid-table team and does a Sean Dyche repeatedly, gets them knocking on. Europa League and Champions League year after year. I still don't think he's ready for a big, big job yet.
0: Interesting. Very, very interesting, Matt. Especially with the way you're saying about you know maybe the up and coming managers in the in the coming years. Would they be looked at in maybe five years' time?
1: Yeah, because a lot of talk has also been made about you know Steven Gerrard when he when he's going to manage Liverpool. He's taken, a, you know, an intermediate step. You know, we're with, with taking on the Rangers job. If he, you know, does an excellent job with the Rangers, I have no idea. I, I assume they're in some sort of European competition next year. I think uh, the Europa League. I think if he takes them to the uh, semi-finals of the Europa League, say, wins a domestic cup and puts up a, a strong challenge against Celtic in the league. Then, yes, he'll, he'll have proved himself and do it, you know, do it over a couple of years, not just once. Do it that over a couple of years. Then maybe, yes, he's got to build something. Yeah, uh, One of the ideas of uh, Frank Lampard mentioned with the Ipswich job. And that's what I'm saying is they've been put in the up and coming route. You know, in five, you know, give them something in the meanwhile. But in five years time, once they've got the experience, then they can go and then they can go and do it. But there's just no British manager right now that I would trust with a big, big job. Sorry, I thought the sorry. This is something I'm really passionate about, and it's a shame that we've only that's, just got the two of us to bounce off ideas. No,
0: that's that's fine. That's why I wanted to let you finish. Yeah, um, sure. A very interesting point. So the point I wanted to make: I recently interviewed Graham Potter, who's manager of osterson's now, he, when I spoke to him, Matt, he told me how happy he was outside of uh, outside of uh, Britain, managing in another in another country. How they've really embraced the culture, how the family's been brought up there, and how happy he is, and how how happy they are as a family. And when I spoke about the run that Osterson's had this season in the in the Champions in the Europa League coming to fruition, he said himself that he doesn't just want it to be a one-off. He has he harbours ambitions. Of, uh, of maybe winning the Swedish league one day and uh, participating in the Champions League. And what is, what is really interesting is my interview with Graham Potter is available to read on the worldfootballindex.com and also on my th- Twitter feed if you scroll down and have a read of it. Um, Graham Potter has re- recently been linked with the Swansea job now, I know there's an awful lot of people on Twitter who are in the know, so to speak, and like to think they know an awful lot. But I, um, my interview is, is quotes of things that were said to me and also approved by Graham Potter himself before it was published. So everything that's in that interview, Matt... Is something that Graham Potter said, but for some people who believe that the Swansea job for him is far too much to turn down, and that he'll be leaving, and that, never mind all the things he said. But I look at the opposite way. He's told me those things for a reason, and uh, I, you know, and I think he'll uh, he'll remain um, he'll remain uh, loyal to Swansea. But I think it's um, if you think of how well he's doing abroad and it furthering his. Uh, His uh, reputation that maybe one day with such uh, with such experience he could well be looked uh, looked upon for one of the bigger jobs in uh, in in Britain with all that experience accrued abroad.
1: Yeah, but again, but what do you say? Just sort of you know goes to uh, Graham Potter's in that up and up and coming route. You know, you're an Arsenal fan. You've obviously met him. You've obviously been impressed by him. Say say Unai Emery. You know. Uh, I was going to say something. Me, okay. Um, something happens, and he says, "No, I can't manage. I'm, cho- I'm choosing not to manage anymore." And Arsenal went and gave the job to Graham Potter straight away. Would you? Would you be impressed by that? Would you be happy with that, or would you say, "No, he's a bit, he's a bit inexperienced now. You know, that's too big a leap for him."
0: Uh, no, well, personally, I think I'd be a bit selfish and think, well, bloody hell, I ended up managing, interviewing somebody who managed, who managed, managed Arsenal. Um, but no, I think he's doing exceptionally well. And uh, just to clarify, Matt, I spoke to him on the telephone. I didn't, I didn't go to Sweden, but okay. uh, it was lovely, lovely all the same, and uh, he's doing ever so well. But if you think of how well Sir Bobby Robson did, and, and Marcus will uh, testify with that, you know, Bobby Robson went abroad. He was loved at Barcelona, loved at Porto, loved at Lisbon, loved at um, Eindhoven, and he won so much. And if you think of nobody, well, obviously Graham Potter has to in Sweden, he's doing a very good job, but if you think of the trailblazer that Sir Bobby Robson was, and uh, he ended up becoming loved abroad and winning so much, there's, there's no. I mean, I know he was a complete one-off, but there's no one like him. Now, I mean, if you think Bobby Robson left England after Italia 90 and went all the way to Eindhoven to manage PSV, Can you imagine Allardyce leaving the England, England job in disgrace and seeking solitude in another country to build himself back up again. Now, I suppose the personalities are completely different, but if, if such a thing happens to you in that respect, surely you'd have a kind of Incentive to do that, but I suppose uh, times have changed and people have changed in that respect.
1: Yeah, again, it goes back to you know Bobby Robson. You know, it's a different back in those days. You know, Bobby Robson having just managed the England team to what he did at Italia '90, and to an extent the World Cup in '86, and to an extent Euro '88. um, Again, he would have been able to walk into any of the any of the uh, big. However many big clubs there were back in 1990, it was it was only really big one. Back in those days, it was Liverpool, because Man United still weren't the same word the juggernaut they are back in nineteen ninety. So it would have been so either Liverpool or Man United, he'd have been able to walk into those jobs. Whereas now, Gareth Southgate, any you know, any of the England managers in the past, Fabio Capello maybe aside, yeah, you know, the, the English okay, the English managers, none of them would be able to walk into a big into a big job now just just because the way that things have evolved over time and how long do you reckon it's going to be before we develop back into that into that stage
0: Um, I think it'll be a long time Uh, I think that needs to start with players first and foremost and um, as I said you know obviously being in Lyon with Marseille fans they reminded me about Chris Waddle when they found out I was English and, um, you know, Chris Waddle played for Marseille uh, 24, 25 years ago. And he's still loved and not forgotten. And I remember watching a video with Chris Waddle as to why he went to Marseille. And he said that English clubs were banned. But, and it was difficult uh, to play European competition because they wasn't allowed. But he still had the desire and the fight to want to go and prove, prove himself abroad. And he did it. And you just hope that in the future that you'll see um, you'll see more players doing it. I mean, Lewis Baker, who uh, was a Chelsea loanee, who came to Vitessa last year and was part of the Vitessa team that won their first ever major trophy, and had a tremendous season. And um, everybody thought he would push on. He returns to England to sit on the bench at Middlesbrough. But yet, if he'd have signed for another season at Vitessa, although the club. Uh, had a very difficult season, then his game might have improved even more rather than not playing at all and just watching Championship football from the sidelines.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, um, that is there anything sort of any more further points you want to add? Because again, it's your debate. So, if there's any further points you want to bring up, you by all means feel free to feel free to raise them.
0: No, 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 no. I think that's uh, I think to keep it with the point that that we did about you know, do we feel that. Uh, British managers are overlooked. For me, it's about the, the paths they take. And, uh, I, you know, when I, I gave the example of Sir Bobby Robson and, and how well Graham Potter is doing, um, I've advocated on the pod before that more and more British players should uh, should look to play their trade abroad. Not just Not just because I chose to do it in my personal life, in, to leave one country that I was born and raised in and go and live in another, but not just in a working sense, in a lifestyle sense as well. You learn to grow, and I can only hope that more and more British managers take the opportunity to go and ply their trade abroad, if the opportunity presents itself, because yeah. there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing to be scared about, and if you look at Graham Potter now, I remember uh, seeing an old interview where he said that him and his wife just arrived in Sweden. And his wife would be at the nursery where they. She would say, "Oh, my husband is a manager of the such and such a team," and they would kind of say to her, "You know, you might as well go home. You know, there's not much you, uh, he can achieve with the team, and look what he's gone on to do: to win a cup, to um, qualify for Europe, and to have his to have his stock rising." I think uh, I think if, if managers are claiming that they're overlooked, 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 then maybe they'll be forced to look along those lines. But I think if they just uh, open their horizons a little bit more and the opportunity comes up, um, they should take it. But they must also give everything. I mean, Steve McLaren was the only manager uh, when he was managing here in the Netherlands, Matt, that couldn't speak Dutch um, uh, with the Dutch press was the only one, refused to do it week in, week out, there was never any progression shown, there was never any intent, and to top it all off, when he left for Wolfsburg, he he released a final statement saying that him and his family are all um, vacating to go and live in Germany, and they intend to learn the language as well, I thought that was a a terrible parting shot on his, uh, from his point of view. So I just think if any manager does get the opportunity to do it, they need to give it everything they've got, and uh, they will reap the rewards.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I sort of echo your sentiments about you no, know, not just the managers, but the British players as well, because you know, it gives them an insight, and it, you know, you pick, you'll pick up newer. Uh, new techniques that you can then bring to to your to your national squad. You know this isn't just the English thing because they because they're the ones always going to tournaments. It goes for Welsh players, Scottish players, and Northern Irish players as well. You know there is going to be there are going to be some players in a couple of weeks' time. Well, maybe even earlier because the way the transfer window works, they're going to be free agents. And if there's no one in England that wants to take you, you know don't be scared to go abroad as you've mentioned. though. Know, uh, Chris Waddle had great success over there. Ian Rush had good success at Juventus. You know, there's there's been a decent past um, uh, a history, whatever you wish to call it, a great history of British players doing well abroad. So there's so there's the opportunity there. You just got to you just got to make sure that you take it.
0: Grab it! With, grab it with both hands. Indeed.
1: Now, before we get on to uh, what I believe is our final Dutch roundup of the season, it's just time to listen to the uh, terms and conditions. Uh, do not forget that you can subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or through the ACAST app. Listen out for Man on the Post Extra Time every week with Chris, Ryan, Jesse, and Justin. And of course, you can find us on Twitter at Man on the Post. And you can also find us on Twitter. I'm Mattery63, M A T T R H Y S 63. James is on Twitter as well, and he is.
0: Yeah, at James
1: Rowe NL. Indeed, and now i just pass it over to... I uh, Hopefully I got this right because I believe the playoffs are over now. So we now head over to our final Dutch round-up of the season and we ask James, what's been happening in Holland this week?
0: Yeah, uh, it is the final Dutch uh, round-up of the season. Uh, I'd like to thank all the listeners for their interest and I uh, hope that I've explained everything in a clear and competent way where they have a little bit more interest in uh, Dutch football. Questions are always welcome, however vague. Uh, listeners, was always, um, ask a question via the Twitter feed. Um, the promotion relegation playoffs were finalised this last weekend. And FC Emmen, for the very first time in their history, will be playing Eredivisie football next season. Having defeated sparta Rotterdam 3-1 in the second leg... And uh, they have a manager in Dick Lukin who left his post at FC Groningen to become manager of Emmen. And uh, they have a very, very small budget, a very small stadium of just over that 8500 And it's their debut season in the Eredivisie. And already their season ticket holders, their season tickets for next season have already sold out as of half past two this afternoon uh the second team who will be playing in uh, the Eredivisie again after a two year absence is the Grafskap, they uh they defeated uh, Almere City 2-1 in the second leg a uh, uh, crying shame for Almere City who were on under, uh, on a tremendous run and I thought they were going to do it but the uh the wily old uh, manager that the club have in Henk de Jong has seen them through. He has heard of his experience with Kamberu and And also the uh, the managerial merry-go-round is being, um, is being quietly filled in here in the Netherlands. Uh, Adelie Koster is the new manager of Willem Tree. And um yeah, so the um, the managers are becoming more uh, more prevalent for the new season, and that will bring, that will bring a new life to uh, to the NVBC for the 2018 2019 season. Now you'll have
1: to remind me sort of what your predictions were heading into the uh, promotion relegation process. Did these things sort of go to form or or were, or were these results and who managed to go? were they you know a bit of a shock to the to the uh, Dutch system?
0: The was a lovely, pleasant surprise um, because I thought that the the experience of uh, of Sparta Rotterdam would win through. But I've i spoken to a couple of players, Matt uh, Rivas, siesma from M.K. Dons, and um, who uh, trained, who uh, had uh, Dick Lucien as, as his manager when he was at um, when he was at Kroningen, and Timo Lettich, who who plays now for Sassuolo in. Uh, in Serie A and they were singing his praises, you know, this is a man who was started out as an assistant and his, uh, his stock is rising readily and he's a real, real people manager and um, I've I championed Almeida City and got quite close but um, uh, FC Eminem was definitely a, a pleasant surprise and I think they're not going to be completely written off next season with uh, Dick Luquina in charge, I think they'll, uh, I think they'll surprise. And uh, the Khaavskap, again, with the with experience of a manager who's managed in the Eredivisie before, who, again, is, is such a positive influence for his players. Um, the two that have gone up... Uh deserve to have gone, gone up through the releg- promotion, relegation, playoffs and uh, be interesting to see what happens next season.
1: And is it, um, the, is, are the expectations that the two teams up will be the two teams down or is there a lot more, uh, I was going to say parity uh, or equality, whichever word you want to use, is there a lot more of that in Dutch football where we could expect to see the two that went up, you know, giving a little bit more of a fight?
0: Yeah, you will see that, especially with uh, De Graafschap and uh, Almere City. Uh, De Graafschap and FC Emmen, uh, sorry. FC Emmen got promoted and De Graafschap as well. I was, uh, tra- um, went off track a little bit talking about the defeated uh, Almeida City who lost De, De Graafschap, who uh, were doing ever so well. Um, if you look at the Dutch first division next season, we have FC Twente, we have NSA Nijmegen, we have Sparta Rotterdam, we have the old ESA. These are big clubs who have often played Eredivisie football, who are going to be playing in the first division next season. And it's already been muted, Matt, that this is the strongest Dutch first division in many, many years. So it's going to be a real dogfight for for some teams to get back up.
1: Good, and I'll be looking forward to it. Good, and I'll be looking forward to it with great interest because you have put me onto Dutch football. Well, a credit to you that you put me onto Dutch football. That I'm actually going to be looking out for Eredivisie games next season, even if it's just the weekly roundup show. I'm going to be looking because I watched one week uh, Eredivisie roundup show the other day. That was. It's actually quite decent, Yeah, you know, I have no idea what I, what I was expecting when it came to Dutch football, but I was quite blown away by some, a hell of a lot of goals from outside the box, which I'm a big fan of.
0: Well, it's, the, the league is in a quiet taste, Matt. I've been watching the league first, first hand for, for more than a decade, and I've always really enjoyed it. I've always really, even now, uh, I went to watch nine games this season watching my local team, Ajax. And there's always, uh, there's always something, you know, not just the young players in the case of uh, Matthijs de Ligt, who's uh, rumored to be going for Manchester City for 60 million euros. Yes, he's a a tremendous player, but he'd be very wise to to stay in Amsterdam a season or two longer. Uh, One of the things that sticks out in my mind this season is the... uh, is how well VVV Ve- Venlo Ve- Ve- have done and Nak Breda have done to, to survive uh, relegation. And also Arden Den Haag. Den Haag have a captain called Arden, Arden Meyers who's extremely underrated. And uh, with, uh, he could definitely play for a bigger team than Ardo Den Haag. Not that Ardo Den Haag are, are a small uh, team, because they're quite clearly not, but he's a very good player. And the same goes for Brian Linson as well. He's been a real uh, juggernaut behind the success of um, Vitesse Arnhem, who won the European playoffs. And uh, people talk about the uh, Mason Mount, the Chelsea loaner, who's made a tremendous uh, impression, which he has, but uh, they also forget uh, how well uh, the Vitesse midfielder. And Linson has done, and if I was uh, Ronald Koeman, I would be bringing it, bringing him into the international fold very, very soon.
1: Indeed, and that as that's the final Dutch round of the season, and that's the final topic of tonight. So that's all that's really left to do is just to say thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I've no idea what the schedule of the podcast going forward is because as of next. Well, as of this Sunday, I'm off in L.A. following uh, Wales away. They've got a game against Mexico in Los Angeles. God knows why I'm doing that, but I love I love my country that much. I'm willing to go all the way across the world. After that, I believe we're all in gear for our World Cup podcasts, which are going to be coming up. Our owner slash boss, uh, Ross, has given us a challenge of doing daily podcast which i'm committed to doing even if it kills me so i've no idea what the schedule is for podcasts coming up we just keep an eye on the twitter feed keep out on our twitter feed and we'll be sure to keep you updated other than that it's just time there's only time to do one thing and that's for us to say goodbye it's goodbye from james goodbye everybody and it's a goodbye from me goodbye and always remember to have your man on the post